Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put on the robe of the righteousness that comes from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. For God will show your splendor everywhere under heaven. For God will give you evermore the name Righteous Peace, Godly Glory. Arise, O Jerusalem, stand upon the height. Look toward the east. See your children gathered from west and east, the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered them. This stunning poem, our first reading for today, is taken from the book of Baruch, a biblical book that appears only a handful of times in our readings throughout the liturgical year. I confess, before I agreed to preach today, I had never heard of Baruch, and I've certainly never heard a sermon on it. And in case you're wondering, what even is this book? The book of Baruch is considered part of the biblical canon by Roman Catholic and Orthodox communities. And by our church, it's considered apocrypha, or non-canonical biblical writings. Despite my unfamiliarity with the book, however, as I meditated on it, it absolutely surprised me. It's images that so beautifully called to mind Isaiah's prophecies and Simeon's song. It's promise of the return of the exiles, not only back into the land of Jerusalem, but back into the arms of their God. For these reasons and more, I want to spend time this morning lingering here in this poem, exploring its resonances and its moments of insight. But first, who was Baruch and where does this poem come from? The attributed author of the book of Baruch is Baruch ben Neriah, scribe to the prophet Jeremiah. He's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, often referenced as writing down God's messages to Jeremiah on a scroll. Remember, Jeremiah is one of the final prophets to issue warnings to Israel, warnings they don't heed and that incur the exile to Babylon and destruction of the temple in 587 BC. In the book of Jer Jeremiah, Baruch appears mostly on the periphery. In one passage, Jeremiah is barred from entering the temple due to stirring up the masses, so Baruch must read his prophecies in the temple to anyone who will hear. After he reads the prophecies, a group of nobles tell him that he and Jeremiah are in grave danger and must go into hiding. The king subsequently seizes the scroll and burns it. What does Jeremiah do? He simply tells Baruch to write everything down again, and this time he adds prophecies against the king. In another interesting passage, Baruch writes down God's words spoken through Jeremiah to him specifically in which God declares that he has heard Baruch's sorrow and groaning and that he will soon uproot the land, but will spare Baruch's life, quote, as spoils of war wherever you may go, end quote. Baruch's great sorrow that the Lord hears and responds to is unsurprising. As Jeremiah's scribe and confidant, he heard over and over the warnings of Israel of God's impending wrath, and he watched as they were repeatedly ignored. He was also subject to all the dangers that Jeremiah faced as he defied Israelite authorities. In other words, he was no stranger to suffering. But his proximity to Jeremiah means that he was also the first to hear the words of consolation that we heard in last week's reading from Jeremiah. 
this mysterious promise of a righteous branch springing up from David, who would execute justice and righteousness in the land, who would bring salvation to Judah and safety to Jerusalem. Baruch's book, from which our reading today is excerpted, picks up Israel's story decades later during Babylonian exile. The book opens with the words, this is the text of the book written in Babylon by Baruch, son of Neriah, at the time when the Chaldeans had captured Jerusalem and burned it down. Baruch read the text of this book aloud to Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and to all the people who had come to hear the reading, to the nobles and the sons of the king, to the elders, to the whole people, to the least no less than to the greatest of all who lived in Babylon by the river of Sud. So here we find the audience in the narrative, Israelites of all stripes, rich and poor, exiled in Babylon. So now that we know the attributed author, the context, the audience, let's turn to the text. It opens. Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put on the robe of the righteousness that comes from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. This motif of clothing oneself in righteousness and beauty, and even the image of the diadem, is a refrain that appears in other prophetic texts. In his prophecy of the coming restoration of Israel, the prophet Isaiah uses similar language. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God, he writes. And again, awake, awake, put on your strength, Zion, put on your glorious garments, Jerusalem, holy city. This address to a city, Jerusalem, do this, also calls to mind another poem, Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, gates, and be lifted up, doors, that the king of glory may come in. Jerusalem, prepare yourself, the poem opens in Baruch. Put on your best clothes, break out your crown. Something mysterious and surprising is happening, and your attire must correspond to what is to take place. The poem continues. For God will show your splendor everywhere under heaven. For God will give you ever more the name, righteous peace, godly glory. Here Baruch reveals why Jerusalem needs to be arrayed in beauty and righteousness. God will reveal the splendor of Israel to the nations, and he will call it by its true name. No longer will Israel live under the yoke of oppression in a land far away. The glory of their home will be restored, and this home will be a place of justice and peace, ruled by God's righteousness. Stanza 3. Arise, O Jerusalem, stand upon the height. Look toward the east and see your children gathered from west and east at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered them. This is my favorite image in the whole poem. Picture it. Jerusalem, characterized as a queen mother, clothed in finery, crowned with a diadem, standing on a mountain edge, facing east toward the rising sun and also toward Babylon. The sun glints on her golden crown and sparks of light from the diamonds bounce off the nearby rocks. A wind blows Jerusalem's robes and she sees flickers, 
of movement on the horizon. It is her children, the people of Israel, streaming back from displacement, shouting with joy as they make their way, dancing because their God has brought them home. This is why she has arrayed herself so. It's the homecoming of her children who have been taken and scattered, finally to return. After this, we reach the passage that rhymes with our gospel reading today from Luke, who quotes Isaiah. For God has ordered that every mountain and everlasting hills be made low, and the valleys filled up to make level ground, so that Israel may walk safely in the glory of God. Like the imagery earlier in the poem of Jerusalem arraying herself in beauty, this imagery of mountains being made low and valleys being raised up also appears in Isaiah. Here, the ground is leveled so that Israel may walk safely in God's glory. Similarly, in Isaiah, the ground is leveled so that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. But what does this mean? I have to admit, at first, this image really puzzled me. Why do mountains have to be made low and valleys raised in order for God's glory to be revealed? The key here is that mountains and the valleys connote difficult terrain, wilderness regions, a connection that's more explicit in the comparable passage from Isaiah. These are tricky geographical features to traverse. The Lord promises to lead Israel straight through the wilderness back to Jerusalem, as when they crossed the Red Sea in their liberation from Egypt, with God as their guide, the children of Jerusalem are impermeable as they walk through any terrain, and this will reveal God's glory. Again, this connects with Isaiah's declaration in chapter 43 that the God who made a way through the sea will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The next verse underscores this theme. The forest and every kind of fragrant tree have overshadowed Israel at God's command. The God whom even the wind and the sea obeyed in Israel's liberation from Egypt will level the mountains, raise the valleys, and make a highway through a desert. From exile to Babylon, back to Jerusalem. For God is leading Israel in joy by the light of his glory with the mercy and justice that are his. Standing on the cliff's edge, Jerusalem sees her children streaming back, straight through the desert, led by the light of God. This is a beautiful hymn of restoration, of return, of redemption from banishment, and of longing for home. And I think that in order to understand it, we have to consider its many layers, reading it first in light of the book's narrative context, then in light of its historical context, and then in light of Advent. First, the narrative context. Put yourself, in, put yourself in the shoes of the audience within the text. You're an Israelite servant, far from home. You're sitting by the waters of Babylon, weeping, wondering if God remembers you. You hear strange words of consolation, and though you do not yet know how they will come to pass, a spark of hope lights inside you. You're a new Israelite mother. You've just given birth in a foreign land, you remember the home of your youth and you wonder if you'll ever see it again, or if your nation will be assimilated into Babylon and cease to exist altogether. You wonder what kind of world your child will grow up in, if they will ever know what it is to feel at home, or if they will be a stranger in a strange land as you are. 
you hear these words, a song about Jerusalem standing on a cliff's edge, looking east. You are in the poem, making your way home towards your motherland. The narrative asks us to consider what these individual Israelites longed for, hoped for, how they understood their predicament, and what these songs of homecoming meant to them. In a word, it asks us to go back in time, to put on uncertainty and feeble hope and hear what it must have sounded, what must have sounded like a strange language. Jerusalem with a diadem of God's glory? Jerusalem has been sacked and the temple is gone. What are you talking about, streams in the wilderness? What is Isaiah talking about? What is Jeremiah talking about? What is Baruch even talking about? Second, we have to consider the historical context of the book, its ancient audiences. What did this poem mean to the Jewish people throughout the years? While there's debate about when the book first appeared and the form we inherit, most scholars agree that it happened around 200 BC, 350 years after the events recorded in the narrative. No one really knows when the fragments that eventually became the Book of Baruch first circulated may have been during the Babylonian exile, but the final form took place in 200. Centuries after their return to Jerusalem, they are still reading this text, editing it, studying it. For some reason, the Jewish people clung to this text enough to preserve it in fragments and edit it into a book. And once it reached book form, they continued to cling to it, handing it down from generation to generation. Along the way, they must have scratched their heads, wondering about the promises. Oppressed in an occupied city of Jerusalem, first by the Greeks, then by a variety of changing imperial hands, and finally by the Romans, they must have thought to themselves, this image of our return to Jerusalem cannot be what Baruch, Isaiah, and Jeremiah had meant. Jerusalem with a diadem cannot mean constant changing hands, oppression in an occupied military state. And so they conclude over numerous generations and many years, the prophecies must point to something else, something beyond our simple return to the homeland. But what? In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll know what it means soon enough. Christmas is coming. But for now, in this Advent season, let's sit with these prophecies, with their struggle and their bewildering images proclaimed to a people soon to be exiled and then to a people very far from home. Let's sit with these prophecies as they were read and studied down the generations by a people gathered back in their Jerusalem, but a Jerusalem transfigured by suffering and subjugation, bearing little resemblance to the glorious queen mother crowned with the diadem of the everlasting. Let's sit with these prophecies as they were understood by the generation of Zechariah 
of Anna, of Elizabeth, of Joseph, and of Mary. Let's not rush to the manger without taking stock of all that came before. For without the longing, without the glimmer of hope, and they knew not what, held on to throughout the centuries, the manger means nothing at all. Let's look deep into what these powerful prophetic words meant for the Jews. Then and only then can we begin to understand what they might mean for us. Amen.